Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, you're you're back in another just horrible place where authoritarians and, and corruption run rampant. Uh, Washington D.C. How's it going? Yeah, there's a little visit to the swamp here. Good, good. Although I, I just saw our former boss for a couple hours, so. A brief return to sanity. Yeah, the one person I'd actually like to say hi to on this city. But we digress. (laughs) Um, Today on the show, we got a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about Trump's trip to India, uh, his new and totally unqualified director of national intelligence, APAC, Sudan, uh, the coronavirus, the fragile peace agreement in Afghanistan that we all hope is going to hold. And then uh, we wanted to spend some time talking about comments uh, that Bernie Sanders made about Cuba and some other leftist leaders in Latin America that are getting a lot of attention right now. Some final reflections on Mubarak, Egypt, and the Arab Spring before my interview with Politico's Natasha Bertrand about why Rick Grinnell, the new DNI, has become an issue in WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange's extradition case, which is just the craziest story I've heard in a long time. So do not miss that. Okay, let's start with this India trip. President Trump just concluded basically a 36-hour visit to India where he got lots of FaceTime with Prime Minister Narendra Modi, but appears to have achieved basically nothing. Um, he was not able to negotiate a trade deal. Doesn't seem like he pushed Modi at all on human rights or his discrimination against Muslims. No surprise there, since Trump also discriminates against Muslims. But, you know, there's this vile uh, citizenship law in India that explicitly states that Muslims are lesser citizens. And when asked about it, Trump said, we did talk about religious freedom. And I will say the prime minister was incredible. In India, they have worked very hard to have a great and open religious freedom which is just absurd. Trump also didn't push Modi, as far as we know, on India's annexation of Kashmir. Uh, they did announce that the U.S. would sell India some helicopters, but that's you know pretty small ball given how big the relationship is and how important India is. There were lots of photo ops, lots of pomp and circumstance. Uh, Modi took Trump to an event with 100,000 people in a stadium in his home district. But out on the streets, there were huge protests, uh, particularly from Muslim citizens, about these uh, discriminatory laws that led to a dozen people getting killed, hundreds injured. Trump did a concluding press conference. Modi didn't show up because Modi basically just doesn't do press ever. Um, so, Ben, like, I'm glad a couple of nationalists, you know, demagogues had a good time together. But it's hard to argue that we got anything out of this visit as a country. Yeah, you know, and look, what, what I think is so chilling about this visit is that, you know, Modi, our impression of Modi, and look, Obama, you know, said some very nice things about Modi and had a good relationship with Modi. But the the point of that relationship, you know, was in part to get India in the Paris Agreement, but also in part to have the capacity to restrain some of Modi's more nationalist instincts. Uh, And now you have Trump going there at a time when Modi has undertaken this series of actions, uh, you know, locking down all of Kashmir, essentially turning Muslims into second-class citizens with the citizenship law and a number of other actions. Uh, you literally have, while Trump is there, 
you know, anti-Muslim violence uh, taking place in some places. And make no mistake for Modi, he got an extraordinary amount out of this visit because what he got is at a time when the global community in, in normal circumstances would be criticizing him, he has a full embrace from the President of the United States essentially validating what he's been doing. And, and make no mistake, like since Modi was reelected, there has been this series of events moving India in a very nationalist direction, a very Hindu nationalist direction, uh, a very dangerous direction potentially for uh, India's diversity and for, for Indian Muslims above all. And, you know, that essentially gets a big stamp of validation from the president of the United States. It's an extraordinary gift to, to Modi that Trump would visit him at this time uh, and, and say the things that he said. And, and it is also just striking to me that, you know, the bar is so low Nobody expects Trump to raise these things, you know? Yeah. And, and I know we do this, uh, I, I try not to do too much, but like if Obama had somehow gone to India in this context, in this circumstance, it would have been a huge story. We would have been getting beat up the whole way there. We would have been getting badgered with questions the whole time there about whether we were pressing him on these things. The, the fact that there were these anti-Muslim actions taking place in places like Delhi would have been huge uh, a part of the story. But it's really worrisome to me to see our media, but just kind of everybody just assuming that Trump won't do that. It's like we've moved on from thinking that an American president cares about these things. Look, I think it's you know important strategically for the U.S. and India to have a close relationship. That's good. I, I support that instinct. But you also want that to be a relationship between the two largest democracies in the world, not two of the leading yeah, nationalists yeah, in the world, yeah. you know? Uh, and so while the strategic objective is is laudable in some ways, the context and the direction that both Trump and Modi are going in is is very worrisome. Yeah, I mean, look, it also just a reminder of like how low the bar has been set in terms of accomplishments and competence because, you know, like any president in past administrations who went to a country where they wanted to get a free trade agreement and then failed to do so would get penalized by the press. Like Obama got hammered when we went to South Korea one time didn't negotiate a free trade agreement and had to leave empty handed. Trump just kind of was like, ah, whatever, it didn't matter. The other thing that I think is notable is, you know, like th this is no surprise, but it's it's a playbook for every authoritarian regime that doesn't want to get pressed on human rights or you yeah. know, targeting Muslims like in China, that all you have to do is you bring Trump over, you make him feel good, you get a big yep. adoring crowd and yes. he's good to go. 100%. Yeah, and the rest of the world sees that. And the rest of the world sees, you know, like if you're in Europe, right, European countries who might normally raise concerns about human rights abuses in India, you know, might normally think about uh, applying some pressure. They see the president of the United States there giving the guy a big bear hug. You know, they lose any incentive, never mind any additional backbone to do that. So it really, it really does kind of open the door for Modi to be even more aggressive going forward. Yeah. I'm going to jump around a little bit at the top because we got a lot of interesting topics today. Um, and we want to do a whole section at the end about Bernie Sanders and some of his policies. But I wanted to talk earlier about his decision, Bernie's decision to skip the American Israel uh, Public Affairs Committee or APAC conference uh, this year, because it's a conversation that I think is bigger than just Bernie. I think it's something that a lot of Democrats are going to start having about APAC. So specifically, Bernie tweeted that he is, quote, concerned about the platform APAC provides for leaders who express bigotry and oppose basic Palestinian rights. And that's the end of the quote. 
If you're wondering who, you know, Bernie's mentioning in that quote, I suspect you would start with uh, Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, who often speaks at AIPAC and gets a platform and is, you know, essentially writing the Palestinians off as part of the peace process. So, Ben, you know, like I saw Bernie's decision and I kind of cheered it. I'm biased here because... You know, I, you and I both watched APAC provide a platform for Bibi Netanyahu to attack Obama for many years. APAC went all in against the Iran deal. Um, more recently, APAC ran some pretty racist, nasty ads about Democratic members of Congress. So my instinct politically is, you know, the same as my approach to Fox News, right? It's like, why would you help an organization that's been openly hostile to you on policy grounds and politically by raising the profile of their conference and then therefore the entity itself? But... A lot of smart people who I really respect, like Yair Rosenberg, who's been on the show before, uh, and many others have argued that Bernie's decision is cutting off his nose despite his face because they say, you know, 70% of the APAC attendees are probably Democrats. Uh, they need to feel represented in that room. They want to hear from Bernie. And those who aren't Democrats in that room should hear a realistic, progressive message from uh, the Democratic nominee and not feel snubbed. So, you know, I admit, like, those are good points. I'm torn. And I'm curious what you think about this decision and how you might approach it if you were advising the Sanders campaign. I like this decision. Look, let's just stop, like, beating around the bush here with this. APAC has been a right-wing interest group supporting the Republican Party for the last decade. Review the record on this thing. Like, they not only give Bibi a, a massive platform to whack Obama throughout the Obama presidency, they literally mobilized tens of millions of dollars in opposition to the Iran nuclear agreement. They aggressively mounted a massive effort to defeat the top foreign policy priority of the last Democratic president, right? And they weren't subtle about this. And they weren't, you know, measured in their language about this. They have been, again, completely aligned with the Netanyahu agenda and with the increasingly rightward drift of the Republican Party on this and other issues. And, you know, they have this, you know, tradition, obviously, of, of wanting to be bipartisan. And a lot of Democrats speak there. And I'm sure Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and Stanley Hoyer will all speak there and say nice things. But the context has changed. This is not 15 years ago when there was like a bipartisan consensus uh, around a negotiated two-state solution uh, and, you know, AIPAC was dealing with Israeli prime ministers, you know, that were like Olmert, uh, who were more centrist. Uh, th this has shifted dramatically over the course of the last decade. And it's also just a reality that AIPAC has fully embraced the Israeli government's move to the far right on these issues, which we know is making any talk that is done from that podium about a two-state solution, you know, nothing but empty platitudes. Because, you know, they'll have people speaking, Democrats speaking at that podium saying, you know, we're committed to a two-state solution at the same time that AIPAC is supporting positions that the Israeli government is taking, that they should be able to build as many settlements as they want with impunity, embracing the Trump, you know, fake peace plan, essentially teeing up the annexation of the West Bank, that, that makes those words sound really hollow here. And, and so I think that it's important that be registered that Democrats recognize that this is not a fair game anymore. <laughs> the, the, the idea that, that APAC is an impartial observer, a bipartisan platform uh, for supporters of Israel is just not what the case has been in practice. When you have APAC essentially, again, acting fully in line with this Trump-Netanyahu alliance, which, by the way, is used to bludgeon Democrats politically, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, I think Bernie, you know, the only other option would have been to go 
and to, to be like a, a have it be a truth telling moment, you know, um, mm-hmm. to go and essentially, you know, call this out. But, you know, Bernie doesn't want to do that. I think that's his right. I think that the basic impulse to say that APEC shouldn't just expect that they can treat Democrats like this year after year after year after year and then expect everybody to show up. Uh, I think it's right to start to blow the whistle on that. And, and yeah. the reality is, like, the Jewish community in the United States does not, like, follow APEC's lead on all this stuff. We had a much higher share of Jewish Americans who supported the Iran nuclear deal in public opinion polling than the rest of the general public. Jewish Americans have voted in the 70s, high 70s, for Democratic candidates in the last several elections. And so every cycle we hear the same kind of warnings like, oh my gosh, this is going to be the end of the world. Uh, we're going to somehow lose this kind of key bedrock of support in, in the, the American Jewish community for Democratic candidates. And that has never happened, despite right. all the warnings from APEC and others. It is super annoying to see everyone freaking out on Bernie about this decision when clearly APEC fucked up its own politics. I mean, you can't be all in for Bibi Netanyahu and oppose the Iran deal and call yourself nonpartisan. You just you just can't square that circle. I just think the concern politically long term is how do you find a way to reach those voters? And one piece of the pie could be uh, through J Street and other new organizations. Although, let's be honest, J Street might be to the left of where some of the more moderate APAC attendees are. So we'll have to find new, smart, creative ways. But yes, I mean, not a hard decision, but I certainly understand why Bernie did it. Yeah. And and look, I get the concern. I don't think you should not try to talk to those people. You know, Obama did go to APAC. Uh, that was in, you know, in the second term when when essentially they came out swinging constantly. Uh, we We did not. But the other thing that he did, Obama, in 2008, 2007, when there was a lot of these whispers about Obama, you know, potentially not being trustworthy on these issues, is he went to synagogues, Tommy. I mean, you remember this. In, in yep. Ohio, in Pennsylvania, in Florida, mm-hmm. he would go to conservative Jewish communities and take their questions, take hard questions, have hard conversations, but also was able to convince them that his views on Israeli-Palestinian issues were motivated in part by his affinity for Israel. And so I think Bernie absolutely needs to go into these communities and speak to these people. The question is, if you say that APAC is the only venue that you can do that, you're empowering them to be the gatekeeper to this community. Right. When I actually don't think that they're necessarily representative of the broad majority of the American Jewish community anymore. Yeah, fair point. Okay, let's talk about another acronym, the DNI. So, uh, Ben, in news that was, I'm sure, chilling to you, chilling to me, chilling to almost anyone who's ever worked in national security, uh, Donald Trump named a guy named Rick Grinnell to be his acting director of national intelligence. Uh, Before working for Trump, Grinnell's only relevant government experience was working as a spokesman at the UN during the Bush administration. And just an FYI for listeners at home who wonder if that job is important, uh, that means that Grinnell would have reported to you and to me. So not exactly uh, a particularly senior guy. He is currently the US ambassador to Germany, a job he's also not really qualified for, but he has managed to piss off most of the country. So that's, I guess, good. Grinnell is mostly known for being really nasty on Twitter, uh, especially to women, to journalists. Obviously, we should care about the qualifications of any nominee. But it's worth pointing out that the statute that created the DNI position specifically says that this, the person who gets the job must have extensive national security experience and management experience, and he doesn't fit the bill. Um, because Trump is making Grinnell an acting director, it looks like he might be able to get around that statutory requirement, uh, and re- Republicans in the Senate 
refuse to do anything about it. Maybe they don't have a lot of options here, but they certainly aren't pushing him. Uh, just a reminder of what the DNI job does. So you're the head of the 17 components of the intelligence community. So you're the leader of the intelligence community. You're an advisor to the president and the NSC in key national security meetings. You produce the PDB, the president's daily briefing every morning, which is the most sensitive and important intelligence product on the planet. Uh, you have the authority to declassify information. You have access to basically everything, all the most sensitive stuff, covert action programs, like all the things that are really, really sensitive. Grinnell has already hired a, a former staffer for on the NSC and a guy who worked for Devin Nunes, who was basically a back channel uh, between the White House and Congress uh, in an effort to discredit the Mueller probe. It might be a short stint at DNI because for Grinnell to stay past March 11th, Trump has to also formally nominate someone so he can officially say that process has started and so far he hasn't figured out who to nominate yet, but who knows if he'll actually care about that kind of law. Um, so Ben, you know, I talk with Natasha Bertrand later about why Trump made this change at DNI, but I think you and I should talk about the choice itself and reports that, you know, Grinnell has a mandate to clean house at the DNI and why, you know, this just total politicization of the, of the intelligence community is so dangerous. It's, you know, this guy was basically a troll, you know, I mean, yeah. and, and he, he hated me, uh, I, like, and so I was like vaguely aware oh, yeah. this this kind of guy would be unhinged about me on Twitter when we were in government. But I thought of him as a kind of fringy character, you know, he was and, and kind of a communications guy, not, you know, not someone who could ever be imagined <laughs> to be the DNI. I mean, he's he's, you know, he's kind of this con- fringe national security troll guy. And. This is terrifying because essentially you're putting a guy in charge of the intelligence community who has no experience whatsoever in intelligence. We've never had somebody in that role with no background whatsoever in dealing with actual intelligence. A job that was set up to prevent the not, not, you know future 9-11 attacks so you could coordinate across the intelligence community. A, a, an office that has tremendous power. Uh, essentially to control the budgets of the intelligence community, the flow of information from the intelligence community to Congress and to the White House and to other agencies. So if this guy's coming in with his set of expertise, which is essentially communications, and in this case, trying to advance Trump's agendas, his conspiracy theories, his ability to suppress information that is not useful to Trump and to try to look for cherry pick out of context information that can be distorted and utilized either to go after Trump's opponents or to somehow validate things that Trump is doing. That power is very real in the office of the DNI. And you see not just a new DNI, you see, as you said, kind of the whole office being cleaned out, you know, the people underneath the DNI and, and more hacks being moved in. This is essentially a hostile takeover and an extrajudicial takeover of the intelligence community because, as you said, this is not being submitted for Senate confirmation because I think Trump knows Rick, Rick Grinnell could never be confirmed even in a Republican-controlled Senate, right? And so the blinking red lights of the politicization of intelligence are there. And again, the two intelligence failures that led to this creation of this office— you know, 9-11, which suggested we need a real intelligence professional to oversee this, and the Iraq WMD intelligence, which suggested that we need someone who wouldn't politicize intelligence. This is literally the opposite mm-hmm. of what people expected in, in trying to remedy those two failures. And it's a preview, I think, of what a second Trump term would be, 
which yep. is that all is going to be left is people like Rick Grinnell running all these agencies, including the most important national security ones. Yeah, experience, expertise, technocrats, they are all getting cut out, pushed out, and it is just all political hacks. And I mean, I think the other area where you're starting to see this become a real problem is with the coronavirus. So um, just a quick coronavirus update. So as of this recording on Tuesday, uh, the virus has infected 80,000 people and killed 2,700 that we know about. Uh, Most of the infections are still in China, but 95 cases have been identified in Iran and 322 cases have been identified in Italy. So it seems like this will soon be a global pandemic. A senior official at the Center for Disease Control said it's not a question of if but when and how many people in the U.S. will get the virus. And they started calling on hospitals and schools to prepare. The stock market finally woke up to the economic impact uh, and the Dow Jones in the S&P are off like 6% last time I looked uh, as of Monday and Tuesday, which, you know, that erases all the gains in, in 2020. Trump is reportedly most concerned about the potential impact on his reelection and that economic impact. So his response was to tweet, you know, all is well, everything is under control, and that you should buy the stock market dip. And that language was repeated by Larry Kudlow, his economic advisor. So who, again, is not an economist. He's just some hack from TV who got put on the Council of Economic Advisors. So again, like, I'm not a doctor, but I would be awfully worried about this disease jumping from Iran to Iraq to Afghanistan to Pakistan and India and like all these other places without uh, maybe the health infrastructure to deal with it. There's speculation that the Olympics in Japan could get canceled. So again, it's like you have messaging coming out of the U.S. government at the highest possible level that is basically nothing to see here. Don't worry about it. And no one's you know speaking the truth to the American people. You got Rush Limbaugh saying this is some made up conspiracy theory by Democrats, which is, you know, coming on the heels of his Medal of Freedom is pretty disgusting. But, you know, again, we're at the beginning of this thing, not the end. And we don't seem prepared. Yeah. And, you know, we're already way behind where we should be. I mean, this has been evident for weeks. I mean, everybody knew this is, you know, this didn't creep up on us. We've been looking at this for weeks. And in a normal administration, what the U.S. would be doing is running, leading an effective, coordinated, multilateral response. Instead, you know, Trump, as we know, got rid of literally the office that was created to run that response out of the White House, eliminated, right? Probably because it was an Obama thing, uh, slashed funding for preparedness at the CDC and other places, and shows no interest in presidential leadership. And I think it's important for people to understand the reason you need White House coordination, the reason you need the president engaged, is you need a bunch of different agencies in the U.S. government that don't normally work together to be coordinated. So, you you know, the CDC and the agencies responsible for health need to be working with like the State Department and the intelligence community, DOD, maybe if you have to move resources. So it really takes the president leading this thing. And what we know is not only has Trump gutted our ability to run that response, but he himself doesn't seem to care about anything other than the market impacts. And, and we've seen for weeks now, when he does pop up the tweet about this, it's always language that seems designed to calm markets. So the bizarre series of tweets a number of days ago, where he was praising Xi Jinping for his strong leadership and saying this was getting under control, when Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party are the ones who compounded this crisis by not being transparent about what was happening with the spread of the coronavirus. Then we see these tweets yesterday, where he's literally saying, no, need to worry about this, you know. And the next day, his own CDC director is contradicting that and saying, no, there is a reason to worry about this. So it's clear that the American people cannot trust what this man is saying about a pandemic disease. 
God forbid that it starts to spread here and citizens are looking to the government for information. Normally, you would think that the President of the United States could be relied upon to relay the facts about what they need to know. Normally, there'd be a daily White House press briefing, which there hasn't been in like a year, mm-hmm. where the press secretary could stand up there with officials and provide this information. We are heading into this blind. We just can't count on the information that is given to us by our government because all they care about is trying to, to prevent the stock market from dipping before the election. Yep. And the reality is that by doing that, Trump has made it more likely that the stock market is going to crash before his election because he's losing time you know, trying to calm markets instead of trying to solve the problem, which is ultimately the thing that will prevent the markets from crashing. Yeah, we, we shall see how much of this is priced in right now, but it would make me a little worried. All right, let's do some good news before we do this Bernie section. So a uh, whole good news section, Ben. So uh, Sudan is first. So after nearly seven years of civil war, uh, the president of South Sudan and his chief rival agreed to form a unity government. And this is just an incredible relief because the civil war has been horrific. There are estimates uh, of 400,000 South Sudanese uh, being killed, uh, nearly 2 million displaced. You and I, Ben, back in the day, were in hundreds of hours of meetings leading up to the formation of South Sudan in 2011. But, you know, all that work, the entire international community's focus couldn't prevent war from ultimately breaking out between, you know, the two biggest ethnic groups in the country. Um, South Sudan still faces huge challenges. There's massive corruption. Uh, Local militia groups still terrorize civilians. Some of those militias are funded by an oil consortium in South Sudan that's owned by China in part. I mean, so it's it's a mess. But my hope is that this decision, uh, along with some of the news out of Sudan, that uh, the former Sudanese president, Omar Bashir, might face prosecution at The Hague for war crimes, might help these countries find you know, peace, security, a diplomatic resolution to their problems and not continued fighting. Yeah, I mean, you know, when South Sudan became independent, you know, there was a lot of hope, but there was also a lot of trepidation because you had these ethnic divisions in the country. You also had leaders who had no experience really running a government. They'd essentially been fighting against the Sudanese government. So these were people who were good at, you know, fighting literally, you know, in the bush. And they would be the ones to say it themselves. Uh, and being put in charge of a country that also had no real institutions or infrastructure to speak of, an incredibly limited number of, of roads, basic things you need for an economy. And, and instead of digging into that, they devolved into this kind of ethnic crisis yeah. in civil war that, that killed people, that displaced a lot of people. I think you put your finger on it, Tommy, that the, the, the hope here, look, this is not going to solve all their problems. It's not going to make these leaders any, any less flawed than they had been in the past. Yeah. It's not going to make up for the infrastructure they don't have. But if you take the, the, the hopefulness of this peace agreement, a unity government, and at least the capacity to start to deal with those issues, you combine that with the potential justice for Bashir around Darfur and the potential for Sudan to move in a different direction because of the protests that led to the toppling of Bashir in the first place, you have for the first time you know, in a long time, the people of Sudan and South Sudan might be able to look to the future with some hope. Uh, there are going to be huge challenges, but uh, we should all welcome this as uh, uh, hopefully an end to the nightmare that the people of South Sudan have been living under. Yeah, agreed with all of that. Um, very quick John Bolton update. So 
we talked for a while about how that coward wouldn't testify at the impeachment hearings because he wants to get paid for his recollections and, and sell books about his time unraveling our democracy at the White House. Uh, so the White House staff has been undertaking what is supposed to be a technical review to cut any classified information from his book. Apparently, Trump has waited on this process by declaring that Bolton is, quote, a traitor and said that everything he ever told Bolton was classified. So the book is not ever going to come out, or at least not until after his election. So I don't think that's good news, big picture for the country, for process, for transparency, but it is kind of fun to see uh, that jerk John Bolton get stymied here. (laughs) Well, look, I'm torn here, right? Because on the one end, you want to know the information. On the other end, you don't want to see John Bolton's account uh, get padded any more than it has by all the lucrative speeches he's been giving. Right. I I will say the broader point here is, you know, Trump's a guy who's like tweeted images from his PDB, shared, you know, intelligence with the Russian ambassador that was hugely sensitive. Mm-hmm. Like routinely, he and other officials try to allude to intelligence when they think it's useful to them. And so we are kind of setting up this system where if it's information that Trump thinks is favorable to him, there's no such thing as classification. And <laughs> if there's anything that he is worried about, it's somehow criminal to reveal it. So he's kind of criminalizing uh inconvenient truths that could become public while uh, giving impunity to people who want to actually reveal classified information uh, if he thinks it's useful to him. So, you know, uh, that's that's part of where we're headed here. But at least John Bolton's not getting rich off it. Yeah, my, my short term desire to punish John Bolton does not outweigh the broader uh, implications. But I'm just going to take a win where I can find one, Ben. The other good news is that is out of Afghanistan. So a lot of people are really hoping uh, for a peace deal in Afghanistan. Uh, and there's some some soundings that we might be close to one. So here's how this thing would work. So the U.S. and the Taliban announced a partial truce that started on February 21st. I say partial truce because the instructions both sides have seem to be neither military, the U.S. or the coalition forces or the Taliban goes on offensive operations, but maybe they still defend themselves and conduct limited operations. It's not a full ceasefire, which I think was a major sticking point for the Taliban, because I think they're basically worried that if they have a, a, a full ceasefire, their fighters might realize that they really like ceasefires and never resume fighting. So, But if this partial ceasefire holds for a week, the U.S. and the Taliban will then meet to sign an agreement where they lay out a timetable for a full U.S. troop withdrawal. And then, as we talked about before... The hard work really starts right then, and the Taliban uh, and the Afghan government start negotiating for the long-term future of Afghanistan. So this is very fragile. Uh, The Afghan government is a complete mess. I have no idea what changed between now and last September when Trump was on the verge of announcing uh, some sort of peace agreement at Camp David, of all places, because this sounds like a fairly similar deal. Tragically, uh, a lot of U.S. service members and Afghan civilians have been killed between September and today. Uh, but, I, you know, I think we all just have to hope that this actually works. Yeah, no, we absolutely do have to hope um, that it works and that it, it can help uh, bring an end or at least a significant reduction in the violence in Afghanistan. The, I guess the note of caution I'd add, you know, to what I was saying last week is I heard from a couple Afghan uh, friends of mine And, you know, I think it's worth representing their worry. Um, And their worry is not uh, just that the the U.S. is leaving. It's that the the U.S. has kind of left Afghanistan before. In the 80s, we obviously supported the Mujahideen, (laughs) including elements of what became the Taliban and Mm -hmm. al-Qaeda. And then we kind of, when we kind of washed our hands of Afghanistan in the 90s, we, in one shape or another, did kind of hand the place over to 
this kind of combination of of warlords and strongmen in different regions, and and then ultimately the Taliban came into power. Um, I think the concern is uh, that by dealing with the Taliban in, in this manner, you we're starting to notice some of those kind of warlords have reemerged and are playing prominent roles in Afghan politics. Uh, I think the the concern I heard from my Afghan friends that I think has to be front and center in the process going forward is we cannot sideline the Afghan government here. Yep, you know, yep. let's is democratically elected government, right? For all of its dysfunction, you know, the, the temptation might be let's get out and maybe the place will be more stable. If the, we kind of quietly under the table, make some deals with these warlords and with the Taliban and, you know, just be done with it. Uh, I think there has to be a really concerted effort to channel this diplomacy into empowering the Afghan government as representing the Afghan people to try to bring in not just the people with guns to the negotiations, but people from Afghan civil society, women uh, who've made, you know, hard earned gains over the last 20 years. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that that has to be priority one going forward is we're getting out, we're drawing down, uh, but this can't just be a U.S. Taliban deal. What can we do to make this a broader piece among Afghans? And what can we do with our development assistance and our security assistance uh, to make sure that there's some center that can hold there? It's not going to leave this a perfect country. It's not going to solve every problem, but kind of gives Afghans who are trying to do the right thing uh, a foothold, at least, uh, to try to make progress with this opportunity. Yeah, I agree. Um, okay, let's take a quick break. And we come back, we're going to talk about some recent criticism of Bernie Sanders' foreign policy, uh, both his platform and some comments he's made about Cuba and Latin America. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Okay, Ben, let's talk about some of this recent criticism and attacks on Bernie Sanders, because I think this is going to be a major issue in the primary as it goes forward. And then if Bernie's the nominee, it's probably going to get even more focus in the general election. Uh, and there's a bunch of sort of related issues out there. So we'll try to move through them relatively fast. But I think this stuff is very important. So let's start with Cuba, because on, on Sunday, 60 Minutes aired a segment on Bernie Sanders that included some comments about Cuba that angered some Democrats in particular in South Florida. And I want to talk about those comments and then also have a bigger conversation about Bernie's past comments and positions about leftist leaders in, in Latin America generally. So first, here's what he said on 60 Minutes. 
Back in the 1980s, Sanders had some positive things to say about the former Soviet Union and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And everybody was totally convinced. Here he is explaining why the Cuban people didn't rise up and help the U.S. overthrow Cuban leader Fidel Castro. He educated the kids, gave them health care, totally transformed the society. We're very opposed to the authoritarian nature of Cuba. But, you know, you got, it's unfair to simply say everything is bad. You know, when Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did? He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing? Even though Fidel Castro did it? There's a lot of dissidents imprisoned in, in Cuba. That's right, and we condemn that. Unlike Donald Trump, let's be clear, you want I do not think that Kim Jong-un is a good friend. I don't trade love letters with a murdering dictator. Vladimir Putin, not a great friend of mine. All right, so I like the ending there. I love that he turned it to Kim Jong-un and he could use Mohammed bin Salman or any number of leaders, but we should you know, talk more about the specifics here in, in Cuba and Latin America because on Monday, uh, the Biden campaign said that Bernie's comments were, quote, part of a larger pattern throughout Bernie's life uh, to embrace autocratic leaders and governments. And then they said that Bernie uh, seems to have found more inspiration in the Soviets, Sandinistas, Chavistas, and Castro than in America. That statement was pretty long, went on for a while longer. But Ben, that last part found more inspiration in Castro than in America. I actually like bothered me a lot because I felt like it went beyond a policy or a political fight and really started to paint Bernie as, as un-American. So Let's just start with the basics because you are a Cuba expert. Um, do you view these comments that Bernie made as problematic? Like how oppressive was Cuba under Castro and what's the appropriate way to talk about that record, do you think? And, and do you think what Bernie said about Cuba's healthcare and education system is accurate? So it is absolutely accurate. And Barack Obama praised the fact that Cuba you know, has incredibly high literacy rates, has a healthcare system that is among the best in the Americas. You know, everything from uh, maternal and child health rates to life expectancy. Um, these are the areas where the Cuban government made a lot of progress after they took power. It is also true that when Fidel Castro came to power, he murdered political opponents in firing squads. Uh, you know, he used violence and arbitrary detention, and an enormous amount of Cubans had to flee the island, and that made up what became this enormous diaspora that is in the United States and, and principally uh, in Florida, right? And so substantively, uh, Bernie was right about the fact that education and healthcare are the areas where Cuba had made, made progress. I think, you know, what causes difficulties for him is Fidel Castro in particular evokes very visceral emotions among Cuban Americans. Mm -hmm. I, I remember when I went down to his funeral. I was the, we've talked about this before, but I was the only U.S. official <laughs> that attended Fidel's uh, memorial because I had negotiated the opening with the Cuban government. I had never met Fidel Castro. I'd met with Raul and his son, uh, in part because Fidel himself opposed the opening between the United States and Cuba. He was a hardliner mm -hmm. here, right? And I remember getting a very emotional email from a, a Cuban-American I got to know in Florida about the fact that her father had been in a jail cell and had heard people that he knew that were friends of him 
killed outside in the yard, you know, and that she wanted me to be thinking of that as I was sitting on that dais. And she wasn't telling me not to go. She understood that there was a benefit to the Cuban people and, frankly, a possibility of reconciliation between Cuban-Americans and Cubans on the island with the diplomacy we were doing. But she wanted me to, to know that and to feel that, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I think Bernie was substantively right uh, in the points that he made. And therefore, I think some of the criticism is has been, you know, just politics and hyperbolic. At the same time, I think he needs to speak to that emotion, mm-hmm. you know, that, 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 yes, you condemn it, but you also understand why this is so important to some people in this country, because they trace their journey to this country back to that moment. Right. Uh, frankly, I also, also think the Biden statement, though, or the statement from the Biden campaign, I shared your view of this, Tommy. Like, I don't think Bernie Sanders... Is, is more informed in his worldview by, you know, Fidel Castro than America. That, that's just not... Bernie's an American figure. He's very much out of the American experience. Like, shoot, my, my grandfather, like, lived down the street from where Bernie Sanders was in Brooklyn playing stickball, you know? That's in a... You know, mm-hmm. we, we, like, so let's not be like Republicans, you know, in the way in which we talk about each other. It's totally fair to have this debate, but I, I, I taking it to this place... You know, you can attack Bernie uh, without going to this place. And frankly, though, I also don't think if you listen to what he said, I don't think that it merits the kind of response that, that it's gotten. Because like you said, he didn't say anything inaccurate. And frankly, the, the reason Obama used to praise Cuba's achievements in healthcare and education is that it gave him more credibility to then criticize their political system. Right. You know, so he looked like someone who wasn't just playing politics in the U.S. He's saying, look, you guys have made enormous gains in healthcare and education, and we respect that. But you also treat your people in ways that are totally uh, contrary to human rights in a number of areas. Uh, your, your economy, in part because of the U.S. embargo, but in part because of Cuba's own policies, has left people behind. So it, it can make you more credible as a critic if you also acknowledge some of the positives or some of the, the advances that have been made. And so I think there is a reason to do that, uh, as Bernie did. Yeah, um, yeah. So to me, uh, you know, y- y- you, can, you can be both substantively right, you can recognize that this is going to tap into a lot of emotion, but it doesn't need to get as hot as it's getting in terms yeah. of the debate. Tone matters on both sides. And I'm probably oversensitive to statements that I feel like kind of uh, try to paint a candidate as an other because it happened to Obama so often. But I, yeah, I do think there's so a savvier way to make this attack. But let's let's talk about the politics in a minute, and then but talk about the greater sort of Central and Latin America record because I think that gets folded into it. So Bernie's also been uh, criticized for supporting other leftist leaders in Latin America. So critics point to a visit he made to Nicaragua in 1985 on the sixth anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution and his attendance at a speech by Daniel Ortega, who was then the president of Nicaragua. The the New York Times did this great piece last year on Bernie's foreign policy record as mayor of Burlington, which maybe sounds weird, but he really did try to develop an activist international portfolio and a lot of that was animated by opposition to what Reagan was doing in the world. So he spoke out against uh, Reagan's support of a military dictatorship in El Salvador. Uh, Bernie opposed the Pinochet government in Chile. So, you know, I'm firing through a lot of sort of complicated, relatively 
relatively recent but complicated history in different countries. But maybe the easiest way to summarize it is Ronald Reagan like actively opposed a lot of leftist regimes uh, in, in Marxist leaders in Latin America as part of this bigger anti-Soviet Cold War policy. And Bernie, correctly, I would argue, felt that uh, a lot of Reagan's policies allied the U.S. with leaders who are carrying out human rights violations and doing things that are pretty awful. Bernie also created a sister city program between Burlington and a city in the Soviet Union where he tried to create relationships that way. And that history gets swept into this discussion. So, Ben, you know, I want to talk about these politics in a minute. But, you know, is there anything you want to highlight or correct when it comes to the policy positions that Bernie had, especially in the 80s uh, in in Latin America? I I think a lot of them are are very understandable, Tommy. Um, Look, you had... U.S.-backed death squads in places like Guatemala and in parts of Central America, you know, that that killed people, that killed priests, right? Um, It it wasn't uncommon for people on the left to be opposed to the Reagan administration's backing of kind of right-wing governments or militias across the region. It doesn't mean that Danny Ortega was a great guy, but the fact of the matter is, Tommy, if you're Mayor Burlington... Like, you're not responsible for formulating every aspect of American foreign policy. Like, you can choose to be a critic of certain aspects of U.S. foreign policy. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's kind of absurd to think that because Bernie was a vocal critic of U.S. foreign policy in in Latin America in the 70s and 80s, and, you know, he may have praised some leaders that that are problematic and, and frankly, that, you know, in, in hindsight— like turned out to, to not live up to the, certainly uh, the ideals that they were claiming to represent. But to claim that that means that Bernie wants to impose like Soviet communism on the world or something is preposterous. And the other thing I'd say about this that really bothers me about our politics and media, we're talking about Fidel Castro. He's dead, okay? Right. <laughs> we're talking about Danny Ortega. Danny Ortega was president of the country, you know, Obama dealt with him. He was the president. He kind of came back, slightly rehabilitated, still kind of creepy, but but not quite as bad as he used to be in the past. But these are people from the past. Donald Trump is literally in India, like throwing his arms around a guy, as we talked about, uh, who's currently, in, you know, supporting policies that are transforming that country. He has talked about the love letters that he exchanges with Kim Jong-un. He's praised Vladimir Putin and refused to condemn the killings of journalists that have taken place in Russia. He ran interference from Mohammed bin Salman after Mohammed bin Salman ordered the brutal murder of a U.S.-based journalist. I could go on. He called Sisi of Egypt his favorite dictator. This is happening now. Unlike Fidel Castro, these people are alive. And we're having more conversation in our politics about some greatest hits album of the 70s involving Bernie Sanders than about what is happening right now in the world. And yeah. I will tell you that Bernie Sanders like, has been very outspoken about authoritarianism in the world. And yes, I would like to make sure Bernie applies that uh, across the board. I think he does. So I, I do think that even if you can find fault in some of the things he said in the past, it's kind of crazy that we're dealing with a current authoritarian crisis by talking about the 70s and 80s. Yeah, and that's right. And look, here's why I think we're having this conversation is because what's front and center here are the politics and not necessarily the policy. So, you know, you and I have talked before about how Trump has made a concerted effort to use foreign policy initiatives to appeal to voters in places like Florida. So, 
he's taken a hard line uh, on Cuba and rolled back a lot of what you and Obama did in Cuba, an attempt to appeal to, to hardline Cubans in Miami. He, Trump essentially uh, backed a coup effort in Venezuela to appeal to Venezuelan Americans. He has gone all in for Bibi Netanyahu in an effort to peel off more conservative Jewish voters, especially in Florida. And I do sincerely worry about what that could mean for Democrats running in Florida, but especially for Bernie's chances of doing well in Florida. And, you know, if Biden had made that kind of political argument, I think I would have you know, had a much more measured response and listened to it. Now, in Bernie's defense on the politics, the politics get worse when Democrats freak out and start putting out statements attacking Bernie and denouncing it. But how concerned do you think we should be about how Trump's efforts and how Bernie's past views might impact Florida politics and whether that might not just hurt the top of the ticket, but some of these members of Congress below him? No, I think it's a concern. I think it's a real concern. I think that the Trump people have spent a lot of time and probably a lot of money, uh, you know, trying to capitalize on their hardline policies on Cuba and Venezuela in certain parts of Florida, right? I think that Bernie's comments, including the Democratic reactions to Bernie's comments, plays into a narrative that already existed that the Trump people are pushing. Um, yes, and that's going to create some challenges for Bernie in that community. I think what Bernie should do and he can't do it right now because he's in South Carolina, but if he's the nominee, he should go down there and talk to those people, you know, um, yeah. like have a dialogue with them. You do get somewhere. And I, I went down there uh, after the Cube opening. I, I remember I went to Miami and I had a police escort pick me up at the gate where my plane <laughs> dropped me off because the police were worried about whether I'd be attacked by anti-Castro people in Miami. I went to a town hall. I got yelled at in English. I got yelled at in Spanish. But you know what? I explained what we were doing. I didn't change everybody's minds, but they respected that I showed up. I'm not saying this to praise myself. I'm saying, frankly, I got a lot of advice from people saying, hey, just go down there, hear these people out. It'll make you understand their point of view better, even if you don't agree with them. Mm -hmm. And that was the case. Um, and some people, you know, agreed with us. Some people didn't. So I think one of the things Bernie needs to do is go down into those communities. And he's yeah. done good outreach in other parts of the Latinx community in this country. Uh, he should do some work down there in Florida if he's a nominee to address these concerns. And you're right. Like, this is the case. You know, Biden framing this as a, an electability case is different than saying, um, you know, you, you, you love are, the Soviets. You love yeah. the Soviet Union, and that, that informed your worldview more than being American. Which, to be fair, it wasn't in Biden's name; it was a, a spokesperson. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I agree with all that. So, final thing on Bernie here. Uh, so, I've noticed some outlets are resurfacing some quotes from Bernie, uh, one from 1974, where he basically called for getting rid of the CIA. Specifically, he called it a dangerous institution and criticized the agency for toppling democratically elected leaders and being unaccountable except to you know right-wingers. Um, so Ben, like you and I have both worked in government. We've been in the NSC. We knew John Brennan well. We've seen how beneficial intelligence from the CIA and the intel community can be to policymakers. But I also, like, I was surprised to see people kicking this one up because I can also understand how Bernie or really anyone in America would be pretty down on the CIA back in 1974 when the world was learning that the CIA had been trying to assassinate foreign leaders and had spied on Americans who protested the war in Vietnam. Now, you know, the church committee was formed, this congressional committee was formed, and they disclosed a lot of these activities. And that led to major reforms like an executive order that says, hey, you can't do 
political assassinations, which held uh, until Donald Trump killed Qasem Soleimani. And then over time, I think Bernie tempered his criticism of the agency. Um, but more recently, you know, he's voted to cut the intelligence community budget. He voted against the Patriot Act. Good call, by the way. Uh, he voted against John Brennan's confirmation for CIA director in 2013. So I guess the question is whether voters care about this stuff, whether they care about statements from the 70s. Maybe they'll agree with the statements from the 70s. Um, and then bigger picture, like if elected, how Bernie might reform the CIA or the intel community. Like, for example, we don't know if he would limit government-wide use of drones or covert action activities or things that are, you know, hard to lay out in a policy white paper because they're often shrouded uh, in layers of classification. But it's just interesting to see a lot of these foreign policy issues and knocks against Bernie pop up this week. Yeah. And look, do I think it's practical to go to the CIA? No. But do I think the fact that Bernie Sanders said that in 1974 is somehow relevant? No, that it's not. And and like you said, that was the low point of the CIA. That that, that church committee uh, process also produced the Senate House Intelligence Committees. It didn't used to exist. There used to be no oversight of the CIA, yeah, right? Yeah. So it was a different ballgame. After after that, you at least had oversight and accountability. The CIA was viewed as this kind of totally unaccountable operation before that that had made a lot of mistakes, including the Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba. A lot, of, you know, a lot of efforts to try to kill Fidel Castro and others. Um, so that's how you have to look at those comments. It's kind of absurd to take them as relevant to today. But what you know and I know, Tommy, is that this isn't really about that one issue. All these things added together are about trying to make Bernie Sanders seem dangerous and seem like he's less than America. I mean, because we lived through it in the 2008 campaign. They, there was a similar uh, effort waged against Barack Obama. And, and, and it's, it's about combining all these comments he's made to paint a picture of him. Uh, and I think yeah. that's something he can address by by laying out you know, who he is, where he wants to go, what he sees as the role of these agencies today, what he sees as our po foreign policy in Latin America today. You know, if asked these questions, I think Bernie can take a lot of them forward. So even on this Cuba stuff, it, you know, instead of getting an argument about literacy programs in Cuba under Fidel, he can say, well, look, what I do know is that the U.S. policy of having an embargo on Cuba has failed and has hurt the Cuban people. And what we should be trying to do is repair our relations with them, because not mm -hmm. only are they suffering, but the Communist Party is even more entrenched there because of what Trump has done. And Vladimir Putin is scheduled to visit Cuba because he sees an opportunity to come into our back, you know, literally our backyard uh, and mess with us. Right. And, and so there's a way for him to, 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 to both introduce himself to the American people if he is the nominee in, in a manner that addresses these concerns and lays out what he wants to do. And, and instead of getting you know, caught in de debates about what he said in the 70s, talk about what he wants to do going forward. And, and mm -hmm. on Cuba and Venezuela, he's got a good case to make that what Trump has done has failed, has only strengthened people like Maduro and Venezuela and the Cuban government and, and Havana, uh, and, and frankly, has opened up a, a big door to Russia and China to be much more influential in our hemisphere. Yeah. I mean, what I really want out of the Democratic Party generally is to offer a, a confident alternative to the Trump administration policies slash like the John Bolton traditional neocon policies. And I have a lot of confidence that uh, Bernie would do just that. Yeah. And I have to say, like the 
this fixation on on Cuba, it's not like it's not a national security threat to the United States. You know, it's an island where people have suffered not just because of the Castro government, but because of our own policies. Yeah, and you can think both of those things at the same time. Yeah, like it, the U.S. embargo has hurt the Cuban people as well as policies of the Cuban government. Uh, and and so I think you know there's ways for Bernie to 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 hold on to his worldview. I mean, he's a man who pr- privileges his authenticity and consistency. There are ways for him to, to not have to, to, in any way, change those views uh, while framing them about what he would do as president. Yep, I agree. Um, okay, one last issue before uh, the interview I did with Natasha Bertrand. So Hosni Mubarak, the former president of Egypt, uh, died today uh, at 91. Mubarak you know, ruled Egypt with an iron fist until he was ousted during the Arab Spring back in 2011. Um, you know, Ben, I think it's fair to say Mubarak wasn't a great guy, uh, but his story, the entire story of Egypt over the last nine years, really, is pretty damn depressing. I mean, things are arguably worse now under uh, President El-Sisi than they were during the Mubarak days. All the the heady aspirations uh, of democracy and human rights coming to Egypt have been crushed. The economy is in shambles. I mean, I, I will never forget that intense 18 days of protests in Egypt and in Tahrir Square uh, that led to his ouster. I mean, you, know, you and I were in daily, sometimes multiple times a day, situation room meetings. You know, you were probably in the Oval Office for this, but I remember when Obama called Mubarak and basically said, it's time for you to step down. And I was standing just outside the Oval and I could hear them shouting at each other on speakerphone through the door because it was so intense. And, you know, Mubarak would often speak through a translator, but when he got pissed, he started yelling in English. Um, You know, and like, I think back to that time, and how little we knew about what was going to unfold, right? I mean, this was before Benghazi, this was before Libya, this was before Syria started, uh, and anyone really knew what this, you know, moment would would lead to. So, you know, sort of sad news on, on a lot of levels, but um, you know, it's something worth reflecting on. Yeah, you know, and I remember that time well, and I was in the group of people that were, you know, urging President Obama to break from Mubarak to, to advise him to step down. I remember I was in that, in the Oval Office for that conversation. It was, it was super intense, as you described, because Mubarak used to wait uh, for the interpretation, and he just started kind of yelling in English. And what Obama was saying is like, look, these people in the square aren't going to go home. You know, they're, they, you've lost control here. You need to initiate a process by stepping down. And Mubarak just kept yelling, you don't understand, they're going to go home. And, and that's what he had said every conversation. That, oh, this will all be over tomorrow. This will all be taken care of. Um, and I remember, you know, Obama saying to Mubarak, um, you know, uh, just because things have always been one way in the past doesn't mean that's how they're going to be in the future, mm-hmm. which felt like a profound statement at the time. And in a way, Obama was right because Mubarak was forced from office, did have to step down, did have to respond to the, the people in the streets. In a way, Mubarak was right that actually things returned to how they were. Yeah. Um, the, but to me, it's not a, a story that is settled here because I don't know that Sisi is not going to end up with a bunch of people in the street um, insisting that he go. And I've had people ask me, Tommy, over the years, like, oh, do you regret, you know, that Obama did that or that you advised Obama to do that? Not, I'm not saying he did it because I advised him, but do, do you have any regrets about this? No, I don't. Um, sometimes you have to be for the right thing. And, and this guy was a dictator. And this guy was corrupt. And, and this, this guy had tortured people. And people were fed up and they wanted him to go. 
I think I regret a lot of things about how the transition process was managed after that, including things that the U.S. did. But the basic point that the U.S. should not stand by autocrats like Mubarak uh, when they need to use violence to hold on to power, uh, I, I stand by. My hope is that the Egyptian people ultimately are able to achieve what they were reaching for in 2011 when they were in the streets. Uh, and it's it's only been a decade, which seems like a long time, but in the sweep of history, particularly Egyptian history, is not that long. Um, hopefully, uh, we can return to those those days. I guess the positive thing you can say is Mubarak abided by the Camp David Accords mm-hmm. um, that were negotiated by his predecessor, uh, Sadat. Um, but... You know, I don't think that that justified a blank check from the United States uh, for the rest of his life to be in power. Yeah, I agree with you. All right, man. Well, this has been ranging, heady, interesting. Uh, and when we come back, we'll have my conversation with Politico's national security correspondent, Natasha Bertrand. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. I am thrilled to be joined now by Politico's national security correspondent, Natasha Bertrand. Natasha, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, So you've been really busy. You've been breaking scoops left and right. So I'm incredibly grateful you could do it today. Let's start with the the director of national intelligence, small role. Um, We learned recently that Donald Trump wants to make basically a a grown-up Twitter troll with no relevant experience as new acting director of national intelligence. This guy's named Rick Grinnell. He's the current U.S. ambassador to Germany. Before that, his main experience was berating people uh, on Twitter, especially women and journalists, and, and working as a spokesman at the U.N. So you have a piece out today uh, that I thought was really interesting that explains how Grinnell was not just mean to journalists and liberals on Twitter, but he was actually a major Trump critic back in 2016. <laughs> how did you find this out? Yeah, so I found out that Grinnell had actually deleted thousands Mm. of tweets, and I wasn't quite sure what they were about. I was just, it was flagged for me that he had kind of purged his Twitter account at one point. So I was curious, naturally, and I reached out to a cybersecurity firm that I have a prior relationship with, and I said, hey, is there any chance that you guys can recover these? And, you know, it took them about two days but they managed to develop a tool that would essentially, you know, go to the mm-hmm. Wayback Machine, which, of course, archives all of this stuff, and find every tweet that he ever deleted. Now, of course, that was, you know, a pretty big project. It, you know, was, it took them a while. But we got tweets that he deleted criticizing Trump in 2016, saying that he was unserious, um, you know, being a vocal supporter of John Kasich. And, you know, saying that Trump was actually dangerous because of his views on NATO. And obviously this was surprising because now Granado is known to be one of the biggest Trump loyalists and most vocal supporters Mm -hmm. out there. So we still don't quite know uh, why he changed his tune. But the deleted tweet suggests that he was just severely anti-Hillary Clinton 
and that he decided to just back whoever the GOP nominee was. Yeah, I think my favorite one was, uh, if you think Trump knows foreign policy issues, then absolutely, yes, you are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> right. And of course, he was then, you know, selected to be Trump's ambassador to Germany. So yeah, a job he's really excelled at. Uh, if uh, excel, you mean, you know, make everyone in Germany mad. But let's backtrack a bit. Um, so there's some reporting that Trump fired the previous acting uh, director uh, at the DNI because he was angry about an intelligence briefing to Congress about Russian interference in the 2020 election. The White House is is denied a lot of those reports. I think Trump did uh, at his press event in uh, India today. But what do we know at this point about that specific briefing to Congress and why the former acting DNI, uh, Joe McGuire, was let go? Yeah, so there are conflicting reports about this. Um, and we actually at Politico, we don't have the reporting. But from my understanding, it is that the Shelby, uh, Shelby Pearson, who is the election security um, expert at the Office of Director of National Intelligence, went to Congress um, and told them what the intelligence said, which is that Russia is currently interfering in the election and that they have a preference for Donald Trump, which is not a surprise, right? I mean, they had a preference for him, for him in 2016. It is unlikely that that would go away because the president really hasn't done anything personally to antagonize uh, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. So, that shouldn't have been, you know, a, an antagonistic thing for her to say, but the Republicans on the committee apparently were very upset and they did not believe that, you know, the intelligence suggested what she said that it did. So it got back to the president and he was very angry that this briefing had occurred without his prior knowledge because he's very suspicious of House Intel Committee uh, Chairman Adam Schiff, who, of course, was present for that briefing. He then took it out on McGuire, is is what we understand, and decided that, hey, you know, his time is coming up anyway, just going to kind of make an example out of him and fire him and install a loyalist who is already Senate confirmed and who would be kind of easy to fill this vacancy until we can find someone to be the more permanent uh, nominee. The, the conflict arises, though, because... There have been other reports that suggest that Shelby Pearson, the election security expert, overstated the intelligence. And having been in conferences with her and having, you know, experienced her style of speaking firsthand, it is true that she is blunt. She is mm -hmm. aggressive and she does not mince words. And she is actually more transparent with reporters than others have been in the past, which, of course, is refreshing for us. Yeah. But for people in the intelligence community, it may rub them the wrong way. Right. So there are certain people who are pushing back within the IC on the interpretation of the intelligence that she presented. And that is why now that's given the white house kind of an opening to say, you know, fake news. God, what a mess. Um, you know, this DNI position is so interesting because obviously like it's important on its face, but the law that created the position uh, requires by statute that the nominee have extensive national security experience and management experience. It seems pretty clear to me that Grinnell has neither. Susan Collins, one of the authors of the law, said as much. Um, but since this is an acting role, does it just seem like there's almost nothing Congress can do to stop uh, Trump from naming someone, even if he or she doesn't have the required experience? I think that's right. And I think that's why we've seen a pattern of installing acting um, in every agency across government. Um, that is what the president has essentially expressed in private, that he does not want to go through these bruising confirmation fights for loyalists that he believes won't you know, be confirmed because they aren't qualified. So 
it's unclear who is actually going to be nominated for for director of national intelligence, but John Ratcliffe's name is apparently being floated again. Mm -hmm. And he, of course, is a very big Trump loyalist who currently is in Congress and has defended him on issues um, relating to the Russia investigation. So it it is unclear whether or not he would be confirmed, but apparently the president is is willing to try. Um, Others who have been floated for the job um, are folks like Pete Hoekstra and Fred Fleiss, who, of course, is the former chief of staff to John Bolton. So Jesus. unlikely that he'll get nominated, given the president's animus towards Bolton at this point. Um, but it, it definitely seems like the president is still looking for someone at the head of the intel community, leading all 17 intel agencies that will that will essentially allow him to retain control over the intel agencies and manipulate the flow of information. Yeah. And, and just so listeners know, I mean, I think Wired had a pretty good piece on this where they summed it up by saying almost all of the roles created after 9-11 literally to prevent the next 9-11 attack will be either vacant or lack a permanent appointee. So we're talking about the National Counterterrorism Center, the DNI, the deputy DNI, the Homeland Security Secretary, that person's deputy, Customs, Border Patrol, DEA, ATF. Like, I know that is acronym soup, but what... What these gigantic organizations need above all else, in my opinion, is just good, consistent management. And you have to assume they're lacking that. Are you hearing any rumblings from Congress about concern about this overuse of the acting role? Oh, absolutely. Because Congress obviously feels that it is a way to bypass their authority, right? And their ability to, and their their constitutional uh, prerogative to vet the nominees that the president puts forward. So even Republicans have expressed concerns about the overuse of the acting role because they know that it is a way for this president to install loyalists and kind of buy time um, so that he can enact policies that are beneficial to him personally or the White House or the administration. So there are grumblings. It doesn't mean that the president is going to be convinced to do away with it anytime soon. But there does seem to be bipartisan pushback on this issue. Yeah. So you had a just fascinating story this week uh, for Politico about Julian Assange, who everybody knows and loves as the founder of WikiLeaks. Uh, If you're listening to this, WikiLeaks, we love you. You're cool. Don't go away. Um, They plan to introduce evidence, according to your reporting, involving Rick Grinnell, the person we've been talking about who will become the acting DNI, that suggest his allies maybe recorded conversations or were somehow involved with Assange's extradition. What the hell is going on here? What have you learned? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a crazy story, and it has a lot of different threads. But essentially, what we learned is that uh, Julian Assange's defense team are going to argue as soon as tomorrow during his extradition uh, hearing that the process to try to uh, arrest and extradite Assange to the United States was abused from very early on, not in small part because of the role that Rick Grinnell played in Julian Assange's eventual arrest. And Grinnell was involved in convincing Ecuador to allow uh, the U.S. and British officials to enter the embassy and arrest Assange. Um, so he promised, for example, that the death penalty would be off the table um, if if Ecuador allowed this to, to move forward. And what they're arguing is that Grinnell's role was actually more extensive than that, um, that he actually was acting directly on orders from the president to essentially bribe the Ecuadorians into allowing this 
uh, kind of uh, operation to happen um, by promising them, you know, money for projects, by saying that, you know, they would not, we would not violate their opposition to the death penalty, and that Grinnell's role in this, because he was the ambassador to Germany, because he was kind of an unofficial back channel, because he was not in the UK, he wasn't really involved in these discussions, inevitably politicized the process. Um, and how they're going to argue that is they're going to be using evidence some of which I obtained that includes recordings between a Grinnell ally and a confidant last year describing Grinnell's role in all of this, um, including audio recording and screenshots that suggest that Grinnell's role and Assange's arrest were being told to people outside of the U.S. government prior to any of it actually occurring. So basically, the team is going to argue, look, this was all completely irregular. The process was toxic and abused uh, from the beginning. And the only reason it happened, frankly, is because President Trump is in office and because President Trump has a political interest in seeing Julian Assange come to the United States and essentially, you know, tell the public, you know, his belief that Russia was not the source for the hacked WikiLeaks, uh, the hacked DNC documents. Wow. So, Again, a lot of threads to pull on here, but what we go back to is the introduction of evidence um, last week suggesting that Dana Rohrabacher, the former California congressman, went to Assange and said, look, Trump will give you a pardon if you come over here and you tell us the real source um, of the hacked DNC documents. Um, Grinnell is not commenting. His office declined to comment. Um, and his ally, whose recordings we obtained, uh, has not disputed their authenticity. So there, there's a lot more to come on this. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, and just so folks know, I mean, these aren't random people. I mean, there's a suggestion that this ally of Grinnell's, this guy Arthur Schwartz, might have leaked even classified information. And this guy is known to be close buddies with Donald Trump Jr., He's one of the people who has been reported as a top ally of Donald Trump Jr. and coordinates attacks on Trump critics and journalists, et cetera. So it does seem like uh, this is an interesting avenue to pursue, to say the least. Definitely. And he, uh, the suggestion, obviously, that Grinnell was, A, giving um, information about a sensitive law enforcement operation to Schwartz prior to any of this actually happening in 2019 reflects very badly on Grinnell because he is now leaning the entire U.S. intelligence community. And of course, it's led to even further doubts about his ability to be objective, apolitical and nonpartisan, um, which are all traits you need, according to every person who's ever served in the IC in order to, to lead it effectively. So I, I think that he's going to be further embroiled in this as the week moves on. Yeah. Uh, so Natasha, your Twitter feed includes uh, great scoops and also a lot of photos of a very good dog. I just don't know if you want (laughs) to plug your puppy in any way or your Twitter feed so people know where to find you. He's the best dog. Um, Yes, I'm at Natasha Bertrand. I post a lot of photos of my uh, 10-month-old lab mix named Wally. Um, So I encourage everyone to follow along. He also has an Instagram account uh, (laughs) at wally.theretriever. Oh, he's only 10 months? Yeah. Oh, that's the best. God, I literally like stare at my dog and just, you know, almost wish you were still a puppy. Although they get, you know, it's fun when they're, they chill out a little bit too. Then they like to snuggle you more. That's true. That is very true. Something to look forward to. Uh, Natasha, thank you so much for doing the show and for all the great reporting. It's fascinating to read. I cannot wait to follow this Assange story because holy shit. <laughs> thank you, Tommy. Appreciate it. Ben, I hope you make it out of DC. Are, are, did you also go to Stephen Miller's wedding or did you not? 
were you not unable to make it? I, you know, I, I, I've never been to the Trump Hotel. You know, maybe I'll cruise by there later and see who's hanging out in the lobby. Is it crazy? Uh, because that, they have to hang out there. Like, can you imagine being forced, essentially, by political, you know, necessity to go to a place where you had to spend like eighteen bucks on a drink every time you wanted to go out? Yeah, and get table bombed by like Rudy Giuliani and Lev Parnas and you know, <laughs> the worst people and, in the world. And amazing, it's Stephen Miller literally is getting married there. I mean, give me a break. Jesus. Uh, Someone told me he had an Elvis impersonator at his wedding. That is so fucking lame. Uh, come on, man. Uh, just and, and like, who wants to marry Stephen Miller? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you read the New Yorker profile of him. People should check that out. This guy's hobby is going home and figuring out new ways to punish immigrants. Yeah. 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 Worst person on the planet. Uh, All right, buddy. See you next week in LA. All right, man. See you. Bye-bye. Pod Save the World is a product of Crooked Media. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Special thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nar Malkonian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM.